I'll take your Bible and turn with me to the Gospel according to Luke. Our passage today comes from Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 36. Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 36. With God's help, if you would turn your hearts and give your attention to the reading of his word. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others, that one of the prophets of old has arisen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now about eight days after these things, after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory, and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Well, finally, after the feeding of the 5,000, the disciples have gotten their time alone with Christ, and it is surely a time of rest, what they have been longing for with Christ after their uh, ministry 
expedition, but it's also a time of reckoning. It's a time for them to come to terms in a personal way with all that they have heard and seen in the ministry of Jesus. And and, And Jesus introduces this subject in a kind of roundabout way. First, he warms them up a little bit, and he says, who do the crowds say that I am? His identity had been the source of of endless speculation from uh, the very bottom of society all the way to the very top, all the way up to Herod. Here, the disciples give the same answer that was the the source of Herod's perplexity uh, back in chapter 9 and verse 7. They say, well, John the Baptist. But then there are others, and they say it's Elijah. Others say, no, 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 it's, it's, it's another one of those prophets of old that has risen. And you can see how in each of these cases, they are pointing to someone of prophetical status. In other words, their judgment of Jesus has fallen short. And in saying that, it's not that Jesus wasn't a prophet, but that alone is an insufficient way of describing him. That alone will not do to sum up the person and work of Jesus. And this is really where the Lord begins to press home this question to the hearts of of, of the disciples on an individual level. You know, it's one thing when you have the teacher in a classroom and they're standing at the board and they're lecturing on some topic and you're just kind of listening along It's another thing when they turn around and they point at you and they call your name and ask you for a response. Where do you stand on this issue? And that's exactly what uh, Jesus is doing here. Uh, Whatever might be said as far as popular opinion goes, who do you say that I am? Never mind the thronging crowd Set aside their evaluation. What judgment have you come to in your heart? In fact, you can, you can see the adversative nature of the question. Who do the crowd say that I am? And they give their answer, but who do you say that I am? He is very much pointing the finger at them in, in a personal way that you is plural, but it anticipates an individual response. You've learned of me. You've heard my teaching. You've seen my hand so powerfully at work. Where do you stand? He's bringing them to a point of decision. Beloved, what is your answer to that question? I would venture to say that as was probably the case with many of the disciples Uh, Many of those certainly more so on the outskirts of Christ's teaching. There are some here among our own midst who have delayed far too long in answering this question of Christ that he issues in the text. You know his person and work. You have been taught. You have heard from your pastors, maybe by your parents, maybe by others. Others have discipled you, and so the issue that you're facing isn't one of ignorance, but you have put off reckoning with what this means for you. 
You've put off coming to an account with what this means, who Christ is, answering this question on an individual, personal level. Who do you say that I am? And Christ speaks through the proclamation of his word today. And that question still rings out. What answer do you give? Well, it is to this question Peter raises his voice, and he says, the Christ of God. By God's grace, through the working of the Spirit in his heart, Simon has seen the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, and he has worked it out, not of his own accord, but by God's grace. And he says, you are the Christ. He is the promised Messiah, the long-awaited Savior, the hope of redemption for all who believe. He's the anointed one. So yes, he's a prophet, but he's far more than a prophet. He is so much more than just a prophet. He is prophet, priest, and king. He is all that the Old Testament pointed towards. Matthew says flesh and blood did not reveal this to Simon, Par- Simon Barjona, Jesus said, My Father who is in heaven revealed it to you. And I would dare say to you that if you are able this day to see that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the promised one, the one sent from above, that he is the Son of God, if God has enlightened The eyes of your heart, you have tasted the heavenly gift. You have seen that in Christ there is the hope of forgiveness of sins, the hope of everlasting life, that you can be saved by grace through faith. Bless God that he has revealed that to you. Put your faith in him. Say today with Simon Peter, you are the Christ of God. Make that your confession. You may have said those words and songs your entire life and uh, recited them just by rote memorization, but say from the heart today, you are the Christ of God. You, Jesus, are the one I need. You are the answer to my soul's greatest longing. Don't delay any further. I think that there is some great encouragement to be found here in the fact that it was Peter who made this confession. I say that because of all the, Peter, of all the people uh, whose lives are opened up to us in the New Testament, uh, Peter is, is uh, our, we get a window into his life that we don't with so many other people. We, we see so clearly he was a man like us. He was a man full of of, of foibles. He is a man, you can see it in our text today, he puts his foot in his mouth. He uh, often spoke too soon. He often spoke of what he did not know. He was petulant and proud. He was at times self-seeking. Three times he denied the Lord. He failed in many ways. But brothers and sisters, he had faith. He had faith, and it is faith alone that saves. 
He had a true and saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And when that question came home to Simon Peter's heart, out of the abundance of the the heart, the mouth spoke, you are the Christ of God. Jesus was and is the promised Messiah, the one sent from God to rescue sinners. All that he had learned of him, from the day that he had first encountered him, you remember when uh, Peter first said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord, all the way up until now, it's all come together, and now he is confessing what? Jesus is the great deliverer. He confessed Christ. Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, when he made that confession. Now, this is where true blessing is found in the saving personal knowledge of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, this does not mean that Peter or any of the other disciples understood all that there was to understand about Christ's person and work. We have to remember that at this point, we, as the readers of Luke's gospel, have a great deal of revelation that uh, Simon Peter and those that were with him, James and John and the rest of the 12, did not have. We have inside information, all that Luke records in those early chapters of the book. You think about Zechariah's prophecy, how God had raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. You remember the angel's proclamation, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. We could go on and on and on, and that's Luke's record given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit for his audience, but the disciples are getting this little by little in bits and pieces along the way, which brings us to an important implication of the text that I want to draw out. Friends, you can possess authentic, saving faith in Jesus Christ and still have a long way to go in terms of your knowledge of who he is, his character, his person, his loveliness, what it means to follow him, what it means to be one of his disciples, what it means to live for him. There can be large gaps uh, in your understanding of who he is. Now, a couple of things I want, I want to mention in light of that. First, let's be patient with brothers and sisters who've put their faith in him but aren't as far along in their walk as we would like them to be. Uh, when brothers and sisters in Christ around us stumble and err, uh, when they fail to see the things that seem to be so obvious to you, seek to come alongside of them. Exhort and encourage them. See what you can do to help disciple them that they might grow in their understanding, that they might grow in their faithfulness to the Lord, that they might grow in their love of Christ. Now, number two, make the same allowances in your own life. Make allowance for the fact that you might not be as far along in your knowledge of the Lord and of the things of God as you think you might be. 
Uh, Peter always seemed to be the first one to speak. Sometimes that was a good thing. Sometimes that was an indication of sincere zeal in his life. But there were other times where that was not, uh, it was not a zeal according to knowledge. He, he, He blurted things out and had to be corrected. Often he seemed to think he knew the way forward. And he often did need to be corrected and humbled and instructed. And isn't that true in our own lives? Isn't that true? Uh, for every believer, every disciple of Christ. Now, if that's true, we want to to ask ourselves, is our spiritual comportment, the way that we carry ourselves before the Lord and uh, before before one another, such that we are prepared to receive correction and instruction and the kind of upbuilding that God wants to bring into our lives, a greater knowledge and love of him? We all have areas where growth and maturity is needed. You see that in in a big, obvious way here in this passage. Look at what it says in verse 21. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus told them to keep their lips sealed. He told them to be quiet. This could uh, be translated, he rebuked them. Some translations do say that. That's often how this, this phrase, strictly charged, is used. Now, why was this? Why did Jesus forbid them from sharing this discovery that they had just made? about something that you would think uh, would be so wonderful that he would want them to go and shout it from the rooftops, Christ Messiahship. Well, you can see it in the explanation Jesus gives. The Son of Man must suffer and be rejected and killed. Peter has just made this confession. He has just said that Jesus is the Messiah and at This time, that word, the word Messiah in the Jewish vernacular was part and parcel with this idea of a conquering king. And someone who would come and they would usher in this time of victory and freedom and peace. They would uh, vanquish all of Israel's foes. They would defeat their adversaries and they would reign, reign victorious forevermore. If you were able to look look it up in, in in a dictionary, Uh, at the time, the only entry you would find would be something like this, triumphant Davidic king. And so you can start to see the problem then. The apostles knew that Jesus was the Messiah, but they didn't know what Messiah meant. Okay? The idea of of a suffering king would have seemed inconceivable to them, like a complete contradiction in terms. And so what does Christ do? He ever so tenderly begins to fill in the gaps in their thinking. He begins to disciple and instruct and correct. And for the very first time, he speaks about his sufferings and death, things that must have absolutely stunned them at first. He says, the Son of Man must suffer many 
things. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. And you can hear the resolve and the the committedness in the voice of Jesus Christ already present here, this unwavering commitment to what lies ahead. It must be this way. Later he will say as he is approaching the cross, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. He has already submitted himself to the will of God. He has already submitted himself to a life of suffering on behalf of his people. Rejection lay in store for him, not a warm reception, rejection, specifically at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. It was those teachers of the law that took the greatest offense, uh, that most stridently opposed his, his teaching and his messiahship. Uh, Christ, the Bible says, was the stone that the builders rejected. They looked at him about his calling. Uh, they examined his teaching and his claims, and, and they said, we'll, we'll have none of this. They, they rejected him. He said, the Son of Man must be killed. The wages of sin is death. And someone had to pay, either you and me or him, you and me in everlasting torment, or the Lord Jesus in our place that he might bring us to God. He was the only one able to bear our sins and offer a fitting sacrifice in our place. And again, you remember what he says on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, it, it rings out in the same way. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And so he was crucified and killed at the hands of lawless men. He died strung out between two thieves on a cross for guilty sinners. And he was raised on the third day. But it's especially their lack of understanding on the the former, Christ's sufferings and and death that lies at the heart of Christ's charge not to go and make it known that he is the Messiah. In fact, you can see here that while uh, Peter hails him as the Christ of God, what does Jesus refer to himself as? He refers to himself as the Son of Man, his favorite uh, self designation, as if to deliberately push back against those connotations the word Messiah was so heavily freighted with in that day. Jesus lays the stress on his humanity, and in doing so, he is preparing the way for the cross. He's preparing the way for sufferings and death that is to come. And so This moment is from this point on that we see our Savior begin to set his face like a flint toward Jerusalem. The movement of the the, the narrative for the rest of the book uh, begins to accelerate. The focus of his preaching begins to uh, narrow and intensify. You see that 
In the verses that follow, look at verse 23. He said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Church, it must have been shocking enough to hear Jesus say that the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected and killed. You can imagine that there's no way the disciples would have even begun to process what they had just heard on that account. But now he turns to them and he says, and if you're going to follow me, you have a cross to bear as well. You also have a cross. Disciples, of the Lord Jesus Christ can expect, they must expect their lives to be comparable to their Savior in this way. And yes, it is true, his sufferings and death will always be uh, infinitely unique. There is nothing uh, meritorious in any way about our sufferings. There's nothing atoning about ours. But if you will come after Jesus, you will know something of what he knew. If you're prepared this day to say you are the Christ of God, certain things will follow for you. Things that will forever change the course of your life. It will be costly for you. It will be costly on on several fronts. Jesus gives three commands right here. He says, first, you must deny yourself. That means laying down all of your passions, all of your pursuits, all of the pleasures that arise from self, those things that arise from within the flesh, all of those things that belong to the old man. Notice here that the fulfillment of self and the pursuit of Christ are not in one accord. The fulfillment of self and the pursuit of Christ are not in one accord. You cannot have them both. You cannot cling to both. We're talking about two sets of aims and desires and ambitions and purposes that are at their very core set in opposition to one another. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot follow God and self. You must deny yourself. One author talks about self-denial this way. He defines it by saying a person must become apostate from his egocentric self. A person must become apostate from his egocentric self. In other words, you must renounce your life that is so bent in on yourself. You must turn traitorously against the fulfillment of your own will. Positively speaking, live in glad submission to the will of God every day of your life. Wake up every day saying, not my will, but thine be done. This is the pattern of our Lord. I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me, and so we follow after him. Second, take up your cross. In the ancient Roman world, everyone knew what that meant. It needed no explanation. 
if a man took up a cross, if you saw a man carrying the cross beam headed out of town, he was on uh, under the condemnation of the state with a one-way ticket. You would never see him again. Now, in the mouth of Christ, taking up your cross, this becomes symbolic of the, of the fact that the life we live, that life which is devoted to the kingdom of God, subject to the king of that kingdom, will not be embraced by the kingdoms of this world. It will be opposed. You are going to face hostility. You will be hated and despised, scorned, humiliated by the world. The Christian bears that cross. He takes it up gladly. Why? Knowing that we will be glorified with him, provided we suffer with him. We long to know him and the power of his resurrection. As the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10, but then there's that little word, and, where he says that the righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus Christ does in fact mean knowing the power of Jesus' resurrection, but appended to that is what we find in this life, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Brothers and sisters, your identification with the Lord Jesus Christ in suffering, in self-denial, in cross-bearing is one of the signs that you belong to him. Paul told the whole church at Philippi, it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. The fact that there is a cross to bear, that we are not at home in the world, that we are not welcomed by the world, received as one of its own, is a testimony to our sonship, that we are fellow heirs with Christ. We belong to him. And so we take up our cross, and we do so daily. That speaks of an ongoing, daily a committedness, a diligence, a perseverance in our allegiance to the Lord. There is a daily dying to self, a morning-by-morning embrace of the realities involved in being hated by the world. Now, most of us will not end our lives as martyrs. Most of us will not be crucified or burned at the stake. But the question still comes to us. Will we live this life as one dead to the world? Dead to the world and yet alive to Christ. And third, Jesus says, follow me. Where? How far? To what extent? No qualifications are offered. It is simply, follow me. Follow me in all that he says, in all that he asks of you, wherever he says to go. Follow me. 
Now, church, what I want to call your attention to is that this radical call is not for radical disciples. This is not just for those who are really out there. This is not just for Jesus freaks. This is not just for missionaries or singles or pastors or for the 12 apostles. Listen again to the words at the beginning of verse 23. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Do you see the implications? Do you see the significance of this text to your life? If anyone would come after me. What I take from that is that if I am living a life characterized by the fulfillment of my own desires, by the acceptance of the world, by ashamedness of Christ, whatever I may have professed by my mouth or in a baptism, If I am constantly following my own agenda, I am not a disciple of Christ. This is a radical call for all disciples. All disciples. Now, I'm not going to leave you there. Christ doesn't leave us there. This must have felt like an incredibly heavy burden to bear at the moment. But I want you to see how Jesus tax on assertions and promises of everlasting reward in the verses that follow. Things that are designed to instill an eager disposition on the part of would-be disciples. If you look at verses 24, 25, 26, they each begin with the word for. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. What does that signal? Each of these lines functions as a motivation and an incentive and an argument underneath the large heading of verse 23. If anyone would come after me, Now, you look at the verses that follow. Here's why you want to take this path. Here's why you want to follow Christ. Here's why it's worth it. The costliness of following Jesus Christ isn't held out apart from strong encouragement. Strong encouragement. Now, I want to touch on each of these just briefly. First, he says, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Now, if you weren't convinced already, notice it is eternal life that is at stake here. Implication, Christ is not issuing a challenge to Christians who are interested in going deeper in their relationship with the Lord. This applies to all mankind. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Eschatological conclusions are being drawn here. You cannot hold on to your life and hold on to Christ at the same time. If you try to keep a grip on your life, if you try to do everything you can do to hold on to life as you know it, refusing to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ, you will lose your life. You will. 
But here's the good news. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 11, Paul says, The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. That is a trustworthy saying, friends. Jesus says the same thing in John chapter 12. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So lay down your life, beloved. Lose your life for Christ's sake. Live for the honor of Christ's name, not your own, and you will save your life. You will find everlasting life in him. Argument two, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Young people, what's the answer there? Nothing. It's nothing. I would have you set this before your eyes as you think about your future stretching out before you, I beseech you, don't think that you can consider your own ambitions and hopes and dreams and have Jesus kind of figure in somewhere off to the side here. Don't think that you can run after your own will and have him content to be an accessory to a life that's mainly about you. What would you give in exchange for your soul? This is what the devil tempted Jesus with in the wilderness. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world if he would only bow down and worship him. Someone else, someone other than the only one worthy of our worship. Set the Lord before you. Worship him. Love him. Serve him. Follow him. Lose your life that you might gain everything. In return. And then again, Jesus says, Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Christ is going to come. He's going to come again. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. He will sit on his glorious throne and every eye will see him. Now, it's in view of that day, the word says this, the way that you order this life with relationship to the Son of Man has a direct correspondence to your relationship with him in the life that is to come. If you are ashamed of him and of his words today, he will be ashamed of you. He will turn from you and will not acknowledge you as his own. If you conduct your life so that you're characterized by embarrassment and, and shamefacedness uh, describes your dealings with the Lord, you are proving day by day the root desire of your heart to be disassociated from, from Christ, and you will have your way. You will get your wish. Now, conversely, everyone that acknowledges him before men Jesus says, he will also acknowledge before the Father who is in heaven. I want to be careful here as we're looking at these incentivizations to say that the call to deny yourself, to take up your cross, to follow him, um, 
Jesus is not speaking of a salvation that is conditioned on work. Salvation is the free gift of God given by grace through faith. But it is also true that to receive Christ, to put your faith in him, to follow him necessarily is to not follow other things. To have Christ as Savior, to bow before him as Lord, is to leave behind other things, is to not bow before the God of self. It's for this reason Richard Baxter says that, the, that self-denial is nothing else but the other side of the love of God. Self-denial is just the other side of the love of God. To love Jesus is to not love other things. Self being at the very top of the list. So you could say that everything we're seeing here is really an expression of faith and repentance. The fruit of salvation. Now, the interpretation of, of the statement in verse 27 has been at the center of some debate. Jesus says there, I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. The question at hand deals primarily with this. When Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, is he referring to a uh, temporary glimpse into the kingdom and its glory and its fullness? Uh, Is the kingdom of God, as he is speaking of it, something that is known in the fullness of the gospel, which is to say on the other side of Christ's a resurrection and ascension. There are passages that speak that way about the kingdom. Or are we talking about the kingdom in its glorious, consummated state? In other words, the new heavens and earth. Now looking just at the immediate context, we can see a few things that are instructive. First, Jesus says that it's something that will happen soon. They will not taste death until they see it. That would obviously rule out uh, the new heavens and earth. And then you see that the transfiguration immediately follows this. And I want to look there, and then we're going to come back to this question. Again, Jesus is praying. It's about eight, week, eight days later. Uh, this time, it's just Peter and John and James. It says, as he was praying, suddenly the, face of his, the, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, if you are familiar with your Old Testament Bible, Uh, particularly the book of Exodus, you might note that there is this cacophony of Old Testament allusions here in this passage. The scene is set on a mountain. Uh, God's messenger is there. He is accompanied by his closest companions. There is a change in countenance. Uh, Everyone recognizes that. Fear falls on all of the witnesses. You have a cloud of glory that overshadows them. There's the mention of tents, even an exodus. That's what the word departure means. So clearly, this is a momentous occasion 
Moses and Elijah are there with Jesus. Their significance isn't explained. Sometimes it's assumed that you have here representatives of the law and the prophets. Uh, that may have some merit. Luke is fond of summarizing the Old Testament in that twofold way, speaking of the law and the prophets. Uh, it's easy enough to see the importance, I think, of Moses. He is symbolic of the law. He is a shadow of the prophetic office Christ comes to hold forever. Uh, the difficulty with Elijah is that Elijah is never explicitly held up as the figurehead of Old Testament prophets. He's obviously very significant, very important, but he is never set forward in such a way where, where the scriptures say he is the chief of Old Testament prophets. He is, however, a type of end times hope. In his day, Elijah came, and he issued severe warnings to the people of Israel, and he was persecuted on account of it. Eventually, you may remember, he was taken up into heaven by a whirlwind. Over in Matthew chapter 7, at the end of the transfiguration, uh, Jesus tells them again not to tell anyone the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. The disciples ask the obvious question. They say, well, then why do the scribes say Elijah must come? Talking back toward the end of the book of Malachi. And Jesus says, this is his answer. Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him. Referring to John the Baptist but did to him whatever they pleased. Remember, John the Baptist has been beheaded at this point. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. So like Elijah, the Son of Man will suffer at the hands of his people. Like Moses, the, the prophet greater than Moses, Jesus is about to accomplish a new kind of exodus. He is about to set out on a journey as he goes to Jerusalem that is going to bring about the deliverance of his people. What did Jesus say? He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Now, how is this liberty, how is this deliverance going to come about? Well, it will be victory through the path of suffering, through the path of suffering. And it's at this point that the disciples begin to stir a little bit from their sleep. They begin to, to wake up, and you, you have to love Peter, uh, always eager to speak up, never uh, reluctant to chime in to offer his perspective there. It says in verse 33, as the men were parting from him, uh, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Now, Peter catches a sense of the glory and the wonder of the occasion, and he wants to hold on to it. You can't blame him for that. He wants to hold on to what's happening there in that moment. You can appreciate that desire. Let's camp out here. Let's stay in this place 
of glory. But that was not the way of redemption. Before glory, the suffering and the shame of the cross must come. So what purpose does the transfiguration serve in this broader context? Well, Christ has just called his people to a path of suffering, to taking up our cross. He has bid us come and die. But now, for just a moment, his disciples see what? See glory. Glory on the other side. They don't see a a change, so to speak, in Jesus. They don't see Jesus become something that he wasn't. They see a revealing of who Jesus is, a lifting of the veil, if you will. And so the transfiguration functions like a preview of the kingdom in its not yet state. Normally, you have to taste death before you get there. But aiming to strengthen and stabilize the disciples, and nearly all of them are going to lose their life for Christ, he gives them this encouragement. On the other side of suffering, there lays a crown. On the other side of the cross, we too shall all be changed, just like Moses and Elijah. So you have this strong note of encouragement and assurance given to the the disciples, along with all of Christ's followers. We don't have to wonder that this was part of Christ's intention. You can see this borne out years later in Peter's ministry. Um, you're welcome to turn over to 2 Peter chapter 1 if you'd like. I want to read a portion of scripture there. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10. Uh, you hear the impact that this had on the ministry and the life of Peter, and the impact also that he expects it to have on ours as we trod this path that is so laden with trials and uh, sufferings and afflictions. Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, these just talked about faith and virtue and knowledge and self-control and brotherly love, you will never fail. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Now, here's the basis of his encouragement to the church, to press on to the end. Here's the basis of our encouragement, to press on to the end, ever clinging to Christ, He says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, 
we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. You see what he says there at the end, you would do well to pay attention to what we've heard. Pay attention to this. Until the kingdom of God comes in its glorious fullness at the return of Christ, see the glory of Christ. When, when, when the, the father says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. When you see the transfiguration, Be strengthened. Remember what lies ahead. Remember the glory. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God, but we will share in his glory. Now, until then, what should we do? Listen to God's Son. Listen to the chosen one. Remember Moses' words. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers, You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. We have a new, exalted, glorious covenant mediator today. Listen to him, love him, serve him, follow him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for the strength and encouragement we find in your word. Thank you for Christ. Lord, we do ask for your help as we endeavor to be faithful followers of your Son, faithful witnesses for him. We ask for your grace, grace to deny ourselves, grace to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, grace to shoulder the cross you've called us to bear and to do so gladly, willingly, as good soldiers of the the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we uh, confess that we often find ourselves growing tired and weary. Our allegiance is found wavering. Our resolve isn't what it should be. We pray for your forgiveness. We ask that you would cleanse and restore us to yourself and give us single-minded hearts. Help us to follow your Son, the Christ of God. It's for his name's sake we pray.